Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. It is a hot summer day, so I'm escaping to the AC to record another conversation with an owner who has an incredible resume of Job Shop experience. We're really honored to have on today Grady Cope of Riata Engineering and Machine Works in Denver, Colorado. Not only is he the owner of a very successful multi-dimensional machine shop starting from ground zero 23 years ago, he is the past president of the NTMA and a founder of the Colorado Advanced Manufacturing Association. We're going to discuss some of the ways saying yes has led him to some wonderful opportunities explore how he generates 70% of Riata's sales from out-of-state customers, why they like Mazak equipment, and for older shop owners thinking of or starting the transition of their shop to others, how Grady is approaching turning over the leadership reins to a younger generation. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Grady. Good to be with you, Jay. I'm looking forward to talking about the Job Shop world. Well, one thing that I noticed, even though we are, the podcast is audio, we are recording Zoom in video, and there's a picture of Richard Feynman on the wall behind you. Why Richard Feynman? Well, Richard and, Feynman. And maybe is, you could say, yeah, tell folks who he is. <laughs> Richard Feynman is one of my heroes. Uh, Richard Feynman was a, a physicist that did amazing stuff. He worked with uh, Oppenheimer and Einstein on the uh, atomic bomb and through that whole era. But he has several books out that describe his curious nature. And he was always looking at everything, whether it be ant farms to plants to 
the, early on, the doctors couldn't uh, diagnose his wife with tuberculosis, and he ended up developing the, the diagnosis of his wife for tuberculosis and dealing with all of those things. And he, he's just an interesting person all the way up to where most people remember him. He was the one that's testifying to Congress on the Discovery shuttle explosion on the O-rings, and he's the one that threw the O-ring in the glass of water to Congress, explaining things to him. But he just incredible character, and uh, I encourage anybody to go read any of his books. You will laugh and be entertained. Uh, evidently, there was a seating room only or standing room only in his yeah. uh, lectures when he was teaching at, at uh, California. Well, I, I second that. The stories in his books are amazing, and he was such a interesting person beyond being an incredible physicist what was he a master i'll say locksmith or lock picker and he would describe the picking of the locks on the file cabinets at los alamos and uh, got in trouble for that (laughs) got in trouble for that he was a painter and a prolific drummer so yes he he took up drumming yes (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I mean, just one of those incredible people that that was curious about everything. And I, I think, you know, we as human beings should always be curious and asking why are things the way they are and, and how can mm-hmm. we change them up? And so I've always uh, I've thought of him that way. And of course, the picture I have is is the Apple advertising campaign uh, picture of him. And, uh, and I've, I've always thought that, that that fit. Great. Well, that probably is there to remind you to be curious. And I think being curious is a hallmark of your career in manufacturing. I thought it'd be interesting to have you share, if you could, with the listeners, what you've accomplished in 23 years of owning a manufacturing company. You now have a team of roughly 50 people running 24 seven in a 25,000 square foot building. You're catering mostly to aerospace and medical, but let's start at the beginning. How did Riata come to be? So when I graduated from high school, I did not want to go to college. So my parents agreed to let me go to um, a trade school for uh, automotive and diesel mechanics. And I, I did that. And that, that launched my career down in South Texas, where in the early 80s, in 1980, I, I went to work offshore for Halliburton Services. Mm-hmm. And I did that for four, five years. And then I realized, you know, I was ready to come back and go to college and get my engineering degree, which I did. I came back to Colorado. I got my engineering degree. And when I graduated, I went to work for the Gates Corporation. And I was a synchronous belt development engineer. And I did that for five years. And I realized that I did not fit into the corporate world. I just, it just wasn't something for me in the, in the way I was built. And so we used to give our parts and machines to be made out Mm -hmm. to a a gentleman that would come by and he he was, he was a rep and he kept bugging me because he knew I was miserable saying, well, you should start a machine (laughs) shop. I said, I don't know anything about a machine shop. I know nothing. You know, I've, I've, I've been in the gates one a few times. And uh, one day he called and he said, Hey, I found you a, uh, manual lathe and a manual mill and for $6,000, you need to come buy it. And I know where we can set it up for you so you can learn to be a machinist. Mm-hmm. So I put that $6,000 on my credit card. A guy had just started a shop earlier that year and I wired the machines up and installed them in that shop. And uh, between him, 
the, the, the owner of that shop and the, the person who convinced me to do it, they gave me my early training for, you know, a few hours and my mechanical skills filled in. And so at night I would go be a machinist and at day I would go be an engineer at Gates. And about oh, three or four months later, they said, you know, you're never going to make it in this machine shop world if you don't quit your job. So I listened to them and I quit. And the next day, you know, here I was trying to make a living out of a machine shop, which was interesting. I mean, you know, if you think about it, when you start from that way, mm-hmm. every drill, every end mill, everything you buy is the first one. You don't have anything. So you buy them. And later that year, I hired my first employee. And I knew that was uh, my beginning of my learning experience of management when the machinist showed up with more mills in his box. <laughs> Realizing now that machinists never buy mills, <laughs> but, but yeah. that's kind of how it started. And, and you know, about nine months later, I bought my first CNC, and we've progressed through those years. And uh, to now, uh, to where um, there's a peop- lot of people a lot smarter than me out there running machines and, and making parts. Well, I want to just comment on a couple things. Well, one is mm-hmm. that you are the classic story in starting a business on a credit card, number one, (laughs) right? You you always hear about that. People maxing out their credit cards and what year was that? that you It was 1993 is when I I, I did that. Okay, so actually I had that wrong. So you more than 23 years, 27 years. 27 years in October, yeah. 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 So you, back then, 93, $6,000 is different than it is today. So you probably did max a credit card to do that. (laughs) I did. Um, and I think it's really interesting, and I want to talk about this later, but you said yes to the manufacturer's rep to buy the equipment to mm-hmm. try this. And then you said yes again to quitting your job and doing this full time. And there was no clear path of success either time, but you just, it's almost to, what I've felt in my career, you just, there's just something inside you. You have to do this. Is that how you yeah, felt? Yeah, it was exactly. I mean, it's, it's what I tell young entrepreneurs when they want to know every possible thing that could go wrong or, or <laughs> everything they know. And my comment was, was in those days, I knew that I wanted to do something different. I, I mean, it could have been anything. Machining was one of the experiences. I, it had to be something where I worked with my hands because that's, I mean, that's how I was raised and that's that's how I came up. But, but if somebody told you everything that you needed to know, nobody would ever do this. So you go into these kind of blind, but, but there's something in your gut, in the back of your head saying, I, I can do this. And it's, it's just, I, I mean, one of the things that... Um, his name was Ben, told me, he says, you know, Grady, owning your own business, you'll have the highest highs and the lowest lows. Mm-hmm. Just just know that they'll switch. The only thing he didn't tell me was it could occur five minutes apart. But, <laughs> but, but, but the reality is, is that's what doing it, as long as you're comfortable with going in and that, that's where I was. I just getting up and doing the same thing every day in the corporate world. And, and where I was, I, basically after five or six hours, there was nothing else for me to do. So I had more time not to work. And, and it was really frustrating where when you're an entrepreneur starting up, um, there's never enough hours. Right. I, 
you you may not be making I wasn't making the kind of money I was then and I probably had a lot more stress but I was a lot happier yeah so the rep pursued you he saw something in you mm -hmm. but you located your equipment within another shop how did that conversation go with that shop owner to convince him to give you space so that they, they were friends um they mm -hmm. had worked together a long long time and the the shop owner and and we've moved around the denver metro area and he's still just up the street from me where he mm -hmm. moved so so he he was he, if you if you talk to him today he would describe himself as his goal in life is to teach other people how to how to go on and start their own business and things like that and and so he was really encouraging and we, we developed a really good friendship and, and to, to this day, I mean, we do different kind of work, but, mm -hmm. but I'll still give rich work to this day that we have an overload for and, and we, we still carry on and we have uh, lots of stories going back to all those years. You know, the good news is we're two businesses that have made it through all that time and we, we both started off, you know, with, with no money and, mm. and just people encouraging us and, and. You know, in those early days, it was other shops that would give us work and help. And, and he, he taught me what I needed to know about machining at that time. And he taught me how to quote and things like that. So, so he was a, a real mentor for me at that time. Yeah. Today, you offer within your company milling, turning, assembly. Can you give us a little more complete picture of where you are today in the services? Sure. So, so we're, we're definitely one of those shops that's high mix, low volume, about probably between 60 and 70% of our business right now is, is medical. Well, actually with the pandemic, mm. it's way more medical. The aerospace is kind of dried up to, to, to speak of it. We, we did a lot of airplane work, mm. but we started with just turning and milling and we've continued to add technology to where we've got multitasking machines. We've got palletized horizontals, Makuma, I mean, Mazak Palatex, and we've got uh, five axis machining. So we've kind of transformed along the way of adding that kind of equipment. And then we've started adding more and more assembly work because it's a little easier to compete when you're competing on entire assemblies and convincing customers that it's a lot less parts for them to inspect when they're getting a whole assembly or sub-assembly rather than the assembly. Well, Let's dive a little deeper into that because I'm sure there's a lot of shop owners listening who make more parts than assemblies and assemblies may seem daunting t mm -hmm. as a service to sell. How, what would you say to a shop owner who wants to start offering assemblies to their customers, but not sure where to start? How do they get going? Well, first off, they, they need to know that that when they're looking at the assembly, what they're selling themselves to that customer is is essentially a one-stop solution. You're you're the solution because because yeah you need to pay attention because you're going to be cash flowing things that that mm. aren't metals and plastics. Mm. You're going to be buying maybe electronic components. You're going to be buying hardware and and things that are going to go in their assemblies. But the goal is is to to try to convince the customer that by you doing that, providing that, the, the customer's not going to have as many part numbers to order, that you're going to really reduce their level of work. Now, mm -hmm. most of them know that. They just would love to have the opportunity to find a shop that's that's willing to take on the assembly work. 
but that said, you know, you, you have to know that you're going to have to hire some people and your quality department's going to have to change a little bit because they're going to have to start inspecting a lot more uh, things coming in from the outside, but also know how assemblies together. Documentation has to become one of your primary uh, characteristics so that you can get the assemblies assembled every time and document how that's done so that uh, there's a whole process behind that. Where can shop owners go to learn about the process to find out? Are there, there must be particular tools to help you develop instruction sets or, or are you just homegrown? No, I'm, we're, we're engineer. So, so, so I, I, I'm an engineer and I lean heavily. I would say if you don't have any engineers working in your company, hire even, even some out of college because mm. uh, in a lot of regards, they're, they're the best at, at documenting and putting together processes like that. Now, now your customers may have a process already in place because they've been doing it. And they, they'll, they will be happily share that with you. But just know that, that their process is gonna have some holes in it and you're gonna have to fix it because what happens in all places is, is there's that, uh, you know, the, you know, a, a machinist's best friend is a really good assembly person because uh, a machinist might not be deburring something properly, but that assembler always deburs it and never tells anybody and, and gets parts mm -hmm. to work together. Well, now it's your problem to figure out all those little things that maybe an outside assembly person helped with. So it sounds like you shouldn't try to take your machinist and have him do assembly for her. No, I, I, that is the wrong area to, to go. You, you, I mean, we, we did it with, with, with young engineers is how we, started gotcha. off to, to create it so and, and it, it continues to develop because at some point there's you know the assembly's going involved where they, now the customer wants you to do some testing on them or calibration ah, on them and, gotcha. and so they, they get more sophisticated and you mentioned cash flow too and that's a great point is that you are buying items that may sit around for say 30 days whether they're catalog items or you're even buying from other shops who they tell you to buy from right so you've got to buy those and have those on hand before they're assembled and then you don't get paid for whatever your terms are with your with your customer right. so right. what sort of cash flow things do you have to think about would you have to figure another 30 days of the total assembly cost or of the purchase what's your role right right so so you can try. I mean, uh, it, it, there's been some stuff that was just, you know, ridiculously priced that it wouldn't make sense for us to cash flow. And so you can work with your customer and say, look, we'll cash flow this. Will you mm -hmm. front this component? And we've had some customers provide. And in fact, most customers, you know, some really expensive stuff. If it's a good customer and you should, your customer should be good, you know, they'll say, hey, is this going to cause you grief? Can we help on that? Mm. And, and they'll help you cash flow some of this stuff. And then as, as you grow and you grow that business, you just you need to pay attention because you know, if you're if the if the assembly is, you know, you know, thirty five thousand dollars a piece and you're used to selling parts that are thirty five dollars a piece, you need to think about that and understand that a lot of that money is probably not from machine parts, it's from purchase right. price parts. And you need to plan for that and and that's why 
I think another component to doing assemblies is having a good CFO on board. Do you try to get the same margin on parts as you do for assemblies or do you back off some of the margin on the purchase components? We, we tend to mark up the purchase components all the, the same. And it, that usually, you know, we usually will do it somewhere between 18 and 25%. So where we'll get. And our, that's, our that's mark, your, that's your markup. That's our markup, but not, and, and we, in, in this particular case, we don't add margin to those markup. Mm -hmm. the, the margin then that we would get would be on our machined parts and on any uh, assembly work we do. So I think it's important be, because the numbers sometimes people hear, oh, 25% markup, but let's say you buy a part for a dollar and you mark it up 25% and you sell it for a dollar 25, that 25 cents uh, divided by a dollar 25 is now a 20% margin, which is not the same as markup. Right. So right. I just want to, put that out yep. there for shop yep. owners to make sure you're, yep. you're thinking the markup is not margin. Right. Yeah. right. And, and, and the key to that is, is, and this is why you need to be careful because you may have to modify those components. Mm. So, so you, you can yeah. hurt, lose yeah. all of that money. So you have to think about each individual thing of, of what's my risk. And right. it's, it's just like, if you're, you know, you know, if, if, I would say on the majority of our machine parts that we make, uh, the uh, material cost is probably somewhere between 18 to 20% of the entire cost of the part. Mm -hmm. Well, if I have a machine part that I'm making and the material cost is, you know, 70% of the cost, I, I need to really think about that because if I lose a part, I may not, it may take me, you know, a lifetime to get that back. And that's, that's really multiplied on on assembly parts to where mm -hmm. you you need to pay yeah. attention to what you're doing. In your shop, you mentioned the Mazak, and before the podcast, we had talked about. I think it was starting in 2011. You primarily added Mazaks. Can you just mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit? Well, so we knew it because of the mix of parts we had. We knew that we needed a a multitasking machine. And uh, we had gone, to, you know, this was just coming out of the recession. So I, I'll, I'll say our, our balance sheet wasn't the greatest in the world either at that point. But mm -hmm. we knew we, we needed uh, that type of uh, technology on our floor to really help us. At that time, I was also the chairman of NTMA. So we were traveling around, the president of NTMA and myself were traveling around to, um, to our, basically our partners that, that helped fund the association. And we had the chance to go to Kentucky and visit Brian Papke at Mazak. And Brian just asked me, he says, well, how come you haven't quoted Mazak? And I said, I don't know. I really, I don't, I don't know you all very well. And I don't, I don't even know your distributor very well there in mm. town. And he said, why? Well, I, I think you should look at us. And, and I don't think I landed back in Denver and walked in my company and there were like three people from the distributor and Mazak in there ready to quote. And, and they, they quoted and worked a deal. And, and you know, I, I think uh, Brian and Mazak probably even, we, we did the financing through Mazak. I think they, well, I know 
that Brian uh, and Mazak co-signed on it for us to get it in the shop. And that machine wasn't in the shop, but probably two or three months. And we started looking at its contribution to, you know, it was, it was probably producing 30% mm-hmm. of what we made in the shop. And, wow. and I, I was just going like, we, we need to look at this type of technology. And so two years later, I went back down and visited Brian and said, uh, you know, I want to add a horizontal palletic and another Integrex. And he worked with us again and we added that. And it's been a really good relationship. They've, they, I've, you know, over the years, I've shared my data and presented my data of what it did to us. And, and it kind of takes me back to when I was NTMA's chairman, I toured we, you, you toured everybody's shop around the country. And I would go in shops that they had a bunch of vertical machines, just like me. And their biggest problem was they were struggling like all of us. Their biggest problem to growth was they couldn't find people, enough people to get in front of the machine. So, mm. so there's, you know, 10 or 20 verticals and most of them were sitting because they, they, mm. they have to sit because they need right. to be tended to. And then I would go to shops that had, switched over to more of the higher technology equipment and a lot of those would say well we, we don't have any debt we cash flow these machines and it, and it was and it wasn't just one it was several and i and and of course there's very few of the shops doing it that way and so i knew that i wanted to over time become that kind of a shop and so we worked really hard at riata and added we just in the, the, the worst part of the pandemic on april 1st We'd been waiting a year. We we just installed a, a new 40 pallet uh, i300 from Mazak. Yes. Huge learning curve, but but it'll do the work of of three verticals. So rather than need needing 12 people to run it, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I, I need four, and that's a lot easier to find. So I'm getting a sense of how your shop has changed since you brought the Mazak equipment in, but. Could you be more concrete in saying, this is the type of shop I was in 2010 or 11, and what type of shop you would say you are now? And so that I can understand what the equipment, how it has changed your shop. So so in in 2010, 2011, we were mostly a one-shift we had a little bit of people on a weeknight shift. We were, and we certainly weren't working seven days a week. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, it's it's been hard, but it was, it's, got, it's gotten progressively harder to be able to find people to staff, let alone skilled personnel, and so that that was, you could you you couldn't grow, and the only way you could grow is at another vertical, but then you needed more mm. people. Yep. And you really would rather have the spindles turning. And, and it, it, it just was this never-ending process of you just couldn't make money or, or not very much money doing that because you, you couldn't. And then you couldn't meet customers' demands and customers would split orders between places to get stuff gotcha. done. So once we started adding that, we I always say the left side of the shop was totally automated and the right side of the shop was where we put all the old machines. So that allowed us all of a sudden to start running 24-7 and even some of that 24-7 unattended with the palletizing machines and bar feeders. And so we were able to find, and one thing is also when you add the more modern equipment like that, you can find 
people that want to learn or work on that kind of equipment. Gotcha. And yeah. So it, it brought a new type of person into the shop. Now I will tell you on most of that equipment, if you came in my shop, you'd see that they were all really, really young people. And that really started attracting the youth and, and kind of adopting our culture over to youth. The other thing is, is if you go around and look at the spindle uptime on that equipment, it's always in the 70s to low 90s. If you go look on the, my vertical side of the shop, it's going to be in the, well, hopefully it's in the 20s. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, maybe if you're running a long running job or something, you'll, you'll, you'll get it up there. But, but I would say I would never, I would never assume I'm going to have more than up spindle uptime of 33%. So you, you go to the automated shop, there's a very few mm. people down there and all the machines are running. You go to the um, vertical side of the shop or the two axis lady side of the shop. And there's, you know, seven or eight people standing down there and maybe one or two spindles turning. Big that difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. I want to get to, you mentioned you you were the chairman of the NTMA mm -hmm. and that helped you discover Mazak or Mazak discover you. Mm -hmm. But I believe it was the act of saying yes that eventually got you into the role of being chairman for the NTMA. So how did that mindset get you involved, I guess, first of all, with the NTMA or any other organizations that may have preceded that? Back, back in uh, college, when I was in college, I got involved with the ASME and moved up into leadership roles and just realized how valuable the experience it, it was in those. So when I started Riata, probably two years into it, another shop owner we were doing work for, he said, uh, you know, maybe you should look at this organization. It's a pretty good organization. You can learn from other people and, and network with people in your industry. And I, I think you'd be a good fit. And I, I said, sure. And I, I joined and there was a, a local chapter here. And, and for some reason, I never got put on the local chapters fax list so i never they would fax out their <laughs> meeting notices and i never got their meeting notices and then one day and I, I don't know probably 2003 or four i got a call and they were saying hey we're, we're really struggling we need um, we need uh, leaders in the chapter and we'd like to, to to make you an officer and i said i've never been to a chapter meeting you, you don't even know me and they said well that's that's where we are and so so i said i agreed and uh, got involved and it was a great great group of people and got to know a lot more people just around uh, you know the, the the denver metro region and that was extremely valuable and every year one of the national the chairman would come and speak and one of them got a hold of me after I introduced and spoke and said, you really need to start coming to these national conferences. And, and he, he, he later became my, my best mentor of all. And he, I went and it was an incredible experience to be with all these people nationally, big and small, and to be able to network and communicate with them. And it wasn't very long after that, that I was put onto the executive team and learned that and i was probably one of the i was i was the smallest company on the executive team first mm -hmm. i was intimidated but then i realized they all have the same problems they all have the same 
you know, issues that small and big have. They're just more numbers behind it. Mm. But but most of them were older than me, so I, they all became mentors, and I was able to learn from them, and and it, it developed my confidence. And, and actually, Riata started running better because of my participation on that executive team. And and when I became uh, chairman, I, I I found that it's it's one thing to lead your company, but it's another thing to to lead your peers. Mm. And and once you lead your peers, you can develop the tools and techniques to. To, and confidence to be able to do whatever you need to do to make your business run as well. So what is the difference between leading your company and leading your peers? And how did that make you a better leader at Riata? Well, early on, you know, I mean, sometimes leadership in your own company is dictatorial. Mm-hmm. You, you say, and people do. That doesn't work so well if you're working <laughs> With your peers, you you have to you you have to develop some consensus. You also have to develop a, a very thick skin because you're not gonna the decisions you make uh, as a leader and a leadership team at an organization like that are not gonna make everybody happy. And mm-hmm. and you can imagine I was on that team during the 2008-9 recession. We had to make a lot of really hard and tough decisions during that period of time. So you develop a fairly thick skin, but you don't let, you, you don't let maybe people's comments or feelings or what they say, you learn how to not allow that to, to, it, you know, many times it's their frustration that it's not about you and, and you learn to work with those people and, and try to understand their perspective as much as, and explain the, the, the perspective you're coming from. Well, if you take that back to your business, and, and I always say, if you if we want to implement anything here at Riata, we can on the carpet side of the company we can say and do whatever we want. <laughs> right. If you go out there, you got to get the concrete to buy in. If you get the concrete side to buy in, nothing but positive things will happen. Yep. And and that's that's what I learned more than anything is 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 how do you how do you get ideas or transformations to happen. With, with everybody. And, and trust me, I, I learned the hard way as NTMA chairman. I think to this day, I may be the only chairman that had a uh, had a had an issue voted down in the trustees meeting. I, I, <laughs> attempted, I, I attempted to change the M in, in uh, NTMA from uh, machining to manufacturing. And, and uh, I was, I was soundly defeated. And I, I thought it was an easy decision and a, and a slam. Mm. And, and I was wrong. And I should have uh, done more work up front to make that happen. I'm getting a couple things out of here. Number one is you said yes in uncomfortable situations. And people have heard me talk on the podcast before about strategic coach and Dan Sullivan has something he calls the four C's, which is sort of a a flywheel in, in itself. And the first C is you make a commitment and then the second C is you have to have the courage to actually follow through on your commitment. And so you made the commitment and you then followed through. You had the courage to follow through even though it was uncomfortable. Then the third C is you gain capability. And by gaining that capability, it gives you confidence, the fourth mm-hmm. C. And now you have more confidence and so you can perhaps say yes to a bigger thing 
where if they'd asked you to be chairman of NTMA when you just first came out of the Colorado office, that would have been too daunting. Right. I just wouldn't have been able to do it. And, right. And the, the thing about that is, is I have now so many people across the country that I can call and ask questions to. Mm-hmm. I have multiple mentors that have helped me and uh, helped develop me. And, and now hopefully uh, I can become that role to other young people in NTMA. And, and, and as, as things change, you know, I hopefully I change with them and, and uh, can, can give back some of what I got out of that organization and the people, mostly the people. I mean, I mean it's always about the people. Yeah. Yeah. People. Well, that, that's something else I get out of it. And beyond the ability to give back through an organization like the NTMA, which is great in itself, but even for perhaps a selfish reason to join an organization if you want to become a better leader in your own shop, even I guess your own family, uh, it is probably worthwhile to join an organization where you have to lead your peers and figure out those tools because they are so transferable back to other parts of your life. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yeah. So, well, th- thanks for doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was, it, it's probably, you know, we all have, you know, inflection points in our life. And for me, that would be a big inflection point in my, my life for, for me personally and for my business. So, yeah, the Colorado Advanced Manufacturing Association was something that I believe you co-founded. Yeah, I was a founding board member. When I finished up my NTMA executive team as I came off of that Colorado was working with the governor of Colorado on trying to define advanced manufacturing in Colorado and I got involved hmm. and um, we the governor helped fund our association early on and we created a, a statewide association and I had seen statewide associations in the Midwest that were really successful and did some great things. The the one in Dayton, Ohio would would be the 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 one I would hold out the best in terms of really? okay. how they were able to do locally. And you know that's what we worked to create there to where we could provide you know shops big and small and medium size the tools and information they needed from a local manufacturing level. And, and it wasn't just job shops, you know, it was OEMs and, and everything else. And so it was just the beginning of the sharing of this information. And, and that uh, ultimately launched us into what we've got as our workforce development out of, out of here. And, and, and that's, you know, that's changed again, because of my participation in that, that's changed Riata and where we're, we're headed with workforce. But, but again, it's people coming together and networking and uh, learning about you, each other. Did you actively seek that out or were you approached? Uh, in this case, I was approached. Yeah. And same right. thing with the NTMA. Yeah. The, it, it sounds a lot like many, going, going back to when you started the company, you said yes. And I don't know, have you ever heard of the book or read the book, The Surrender Experiment by Mickey Singer? I have not. I have not. So he, incredibly successful businessman. 
and he decided early on in his life he would just sort of follow the things that came along and say yes to surrender to rather than saying this is this is the plan this is what i'm going to do okay this is for some reason whether you want to say god or some other power has just ordained that this is a path I have to follow and rather fight it. He surrendered to it. And it sounds almost like that's what you have done uh, in your career, in your life, in your journey. Yeah, it, it, it has. And, and I, maybe there are times I wish I, <laughs> I would have fought it, but, but I, I would say for the most part, as I look back on things now, the, these were all, things that, that helped me and, and my, my career and my family and in my business. And I'm just, I'm glad I, 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 I took time to, because you will always find and people that'll say, well, I don't have time for that. I got to run right. my business. And the problem is, is okay. You're working in your business. These things force you to work on your business and they, they force you to, to talk about your business to other people. But what you ultimately find out is these people have either A, are having the same problems you are, or they've had them already and solved them, and this is what they did. And, you know, I, I always say there's these these cycles. And if, if you own a business long enough, and if you find somebody that, you know, it was all straight up and they, they never had any, you know, uh, puckering moments of hoping they were going to stay in business, they either weren't in business very long before they, they transacted or whatever, but you, you go through this sinusoidal period of time, and a lot of times they're your own mistakes that you have to learn from. Yeah. But but you're going to go down to one of these points to where, you know, you you might lose your business, you might lose it, and I, and people always say, well, why is it that the the bank always has to come and 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 take the business away from small business owners. I say, because up until the day and the second that bank comes, they believe they're going to solve the problem and get out of it. That's the most amazing thing about entrepreneurs. When you go through these, these curves like that, it's nice to know other people that have been there and they said, Oh, you'll get out of it. You just got to focus and, and work your way through those bad times. And, mm -hmm. and that's literally, that's the mental part of business that sometimes you need a friend to help you with. Yeah. Do you have a board of advisors? I, I, I don't. It sounds you have more like an informal, perhaps. Yeah, I do. For, for many years, I was involved with tech or, or Vistage, and mm -hmm. I did that. And, and that was a, a great set of people, and I keep in contact. But the, the people that are my advisors now are, are professional people associated with the business, but also uh, just other owners I've developed a relationship. I, I would tell you that uh, as, as I move on and forward, it's on my list of that we have to develop an outside board of advisors because I, I, I don't, I'm not giving my company over to family or anything else like that. Mm. But uh, at some point I need to develop an exit strategy and those type of people will help me do that and also help the company go to the next level beyond me. That is an area I wanted to explore with you, what your role is now. And that sounds like that's the turning over of the leadership reins and the future of Riata is part of your role. What other, what other things occupy you today? Or do you, I know we don't always get to spend the time where we want, but 
where do you try to spend your time? Well, where, where I try and where I should spend my time is, is on that. What is the most important thing that Riata needs right now and, mm-hmm. and, and for the rest of its life are, are people, the right people in the right places. So I'm constantly looking to make sure we have our leadership team, you know, with enough, you know, different abilities across, across all disciplines to where uh, they don't necessarily always have to agree, but they, they have to, to be able to share and exchange information to help make Riata better and make it so that, you know, my goal probably for the last two years and going forward is how do we make Riata run so that it doesn't need me? Mm. If, if it doesn't need me, then I've, I've pulled all the right, right buttons and, and, and levers to, to make what's some of the progress you've made in the last two years to get to that point the the, the first component that i did and uh, and, he, and he chose me was i had a i had a part-time uh, a cfo that mm-hmm. worked for a accounting firm in here and was helping me through uh, I'll, I'll say a, a riata recession because it wasn't a recession that had anything mm-hmm. to, to do with outside and uh, he worked with me in the bank and uh, probably on the worst day of my life he, he came and said you know I, I think i'd like to come and work for you full time I, hmm. I, <laughs> I said nobody knows the books better than you how, how, how this work and uh, and he did, and it was the best decision. So, so I hired a, a full-time CFO that mm. really knew the stuff, and and he took that apart away from me, so I didn't have to worry about it. I mean, I get to get see my numbers, I get to look. You know, I'm I'm in the loop. I know everything, but but not having to worry about that part of the business, and now fo- you know, focusing on development of people, things like that, it changed everything and made me realize that. Now I needed to do that. I, we, we fired a young production manager that I, 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 I see big things out of. And, and so I'm excited as we add these people. And as we, we're also working uh, with CareerWise, which is developing um, apprenticeship programs. And we've got a, a high school right over here where my people and my apprentices go over and help that has 60 students when they were up and running all all learning to machine and do that. We've had this summer, I think we had like nine high school interns or apprentices in here working. So bringing the youth on is a big role of mine. And then the, the, my role is is just making sure we get the right business into the business at the right time. And then monitoring what technology we had. I, I, I mean, I may be old, but I'm a geek. Knows me, you know, they know I'm going to buy a new iPhone every year and all the other stuff. And, and I'm going to screw around with whatever technology is out there. Well, I, I do the same thing with Riata. I have a CFO mm-hmm. now that stops me a little bit. <laughs> but, 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 but I, I, I think that technology is where the job shop world is, is headed. And we need to pay attention to that because that is the thing that's going to define whether you continue to exist as a shop going forward or as a business going forward or whether um, you get taken out. And there's a, you know, if you watch the trends out there, there are things that, you know, 
there are, there are Amazons in our world that are going to take us out if we're not careful and uh, mm. don't pay attention to what we need to do to make ourselves more efficient and, and bigger and better. People, technology, and uh, just that may, maybe saying yes as you go forward to seeing what, what, what other things can come into your life out there to make it work. So I'm curious about, you say technology, because that's so broad. Are you talking in the front office, on the floor, uh, or other aspects? Where, where, what do you think is critical for, like, let's, let, yeah, let's break it down. What's critical now if a shop isn't thinking about implementing this in the next year or two, they're in trouble. And then what's more cutting edge or something you have to be thinking about implementing in the next three to four years? Or let's, let's, let's just what, like to really, you, you're spending time on this, hear your thoughts on what is appropriate for a shop. Well, several things and, and, and you, you have to take, I, I think, a holistic approach for it. You, you have to look at and bring automation into the shop floor. One, to be competitive, but two, you, you need spindles and things happening 24 hours a day and, mm-hmm. and you probably can't afford to have a person in front of every machine, let alone can you find all those people to grow your business. So, so that type of technology, which is interesting and changing, and that's why you should work with your, you know, your favorite machine tool manufacturer to learn and go to their classes and schools and learn and, and, and develop along with that. And, you know, we've, Mazak's been a wonderful partner with us and, and that's, that's, that's a future and, and the distributor now is right behind us and, and they kind of use this as a showroom to show off some mm. of the machines. And, and we love being able to do that because the more job shops that get this kind of equipment, the more money the machine tool manufacturer can make and the more things they can develop to watch that going forward. The other side of it, which people forget, is the software side. And I'm not just talking about the CAD CAM systems. Yes, they're amazing. And you should go into the, the, the most technical versions of those to work with the machines you have and and have your guys learn how to use those in the most sophisticated Mm -hmm. ways because that because you know it it, it, shops are digital now but they're becoming even more digital where you know you know some companies you don't even see a a 2d print everything's coming 3d so you've got to be able to move that 3d through your entire Mm -hmm. shop process quickly but the part that i don't think people focus on enough now of is the automation of let's let's call it the digitization of the shop the whole shop needs to become digital and uh, paperless part is a great example of of how software can start to transform your your life i mean and and even your customer's life because it's not just changing the shop it's changing the customer's way of how they're looking at your quotes or proposals it's changing the way that you can communicate throughout the entire company to give everybody's input onto a part or a quote. It's automating that process so that, you know, you know, we, we all expect Amazon to either deliver the same day, the next day, or two days. If mm. it's worse than that now, it's wrong. Well, if you don't think our customers aren't going to expect their quotes and their parts in those type of, of that cadence it's coming i mean it, it changed ever since the fax machine and it, it just keeps compressing and mm-hmm. so tools like 
like paperless parts and and you know hopefully somebody out there will develop an ERP system that copies that same technology and, and technique. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that are going to allow the shops to, to change. And then, and then the monitoring software, the, the machine metrics and the, that you can start. So now there's all this stuff that we can get, all the data we can look at. And I, I've said all along, you know, if we can measure it, then we can change it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can go off my gut and I've been right, but, but now it, it, there's so much information out there. You need to look at what do we need to measure and what do we need to monitor and how can we use that data to launch ourselves to the next level. And, and, and it, of course, then my other speech that goes along with that is, is that, you know, guys, because everybody will get focused on the data, is much better for us to be approximately correct than exactly wrong. And then, <laughs> And, and I stole that from from Ellie well, Goldratt. So from, and from I'll, yeah, and I'll I'll throw out uh, and by CTO said or exactly right because if you're spending that much time to be exactly right, you're wasting time and energy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. But but that's what's going to transform our companies now is 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 having that data at our fingertips so that we know what lever to pull and button to push and you know no no you know don't don't just decide on a whim that it's time to add equipment right especially when you you have no idea if if your machines are are running at the rates they should and it's just time for job shops to really take a look at that for the longest time all of this was thought well the oems needed this it just didn't trigger down to us but this is how you make yourself competitive and 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 uh, will improve that cash flow, which is the number one thing that job shops suffer from. Yeah. Well, thank you for sh- sharing that on technology. That's a sure. I, I think that was a great synopsis. You probably also spend some of your time on business development, and you had shared that seventy percent of your sales happen outside of Colorado. That's not Mm. typical within a job shop to have sales outside of a 50, 100, 150 mile radius. So is that deliberate or just happens? No, no, it's, it's deliberate. I mean, one Colorado is, is not like the Midwest or, or not like the Northeast or, or California. We, we don't have, you know, OEMs lined up looking for bunches of job shops. There, there's work here and it's great, but I, I decided early on that uh, I wanted to diversify out of Colorado because, you know, the majority of what we make, you can hold in one or two hands and, and, and shipping is just, mm-hmm. it doesn't cost that much. And so I deliberately said, you know, let's, let's go out and I didn't want to hire reps. So I hired uh, outside salespeople that worked for Riata and, mm. uh, and, focused and the first one I hired was in the California area and and he brought on a bunch of California companies for us to work with and then he moved and the region he lived in at that point and then it just kind of started spreading from there I I worked on the Midwest and the East Coast Hmm. in terms of finding business and you know Colorado I mean Colorado can be fairly competitive and you know one of my 
sales techniques always with the customers. It's not a pl bad place to come visit every once in a while, especially <laughs> in the winter if you want to ski or something, you know? Sure. So, 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 so it's just a, a matter of going out there and, and doing it. And, and, you know, I, I, the, the best example I have of people go, yeah, but if you have quality issues, it becomes hard. We have a customer, our biggest customer in the Pittsburgh area and uh, three o'clock one afternoon in Colorado, they called me with a problem and uh, I said, I'll, I'd be there the next day. And I got on a plane and I flew that night and I was at their 830 meeting to help solve the problem. And wow. they said that uh, they didn't think the shop down the street would get there that quick. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it proved that you can do whatever you need to do to service out people outside the state. So obviously a commitment to be responsive like that. You have direct salespeople. Do they, you mentioned the fellow in California, do the others typically live in the territory they cover or do they fly into it? They, they fly into it. They fly yeah. into it. I mean, the key key there is is, is just marketing and, and you know, following leads and, and following people as they move in industries, hmm. you know, follow, following the people you've worked with all along and, and keep building upon those. You say marketing, how do you market in a territory that's not your own? Well, digitally, I mean, I mean now more, more than ever through LinkedIn, uh, you know, just, you know, send, sending emails out and trying to. So is it a lot of, identification of targets by the salespeople and then the, the email or connecting through LinkedIn or mm -hmm. things like that. That's mm -hmm. what you're, okay. I, I mean, I mean the whole goal for, for me, I, I probably as younger people come on, it won't be, but for me, and you can't, you know, this is the longest I haven't traveled. Right. For me is if you can get me in the door and I can sit next to that person, I know that I can, I can convince them to give us a chance or give us a try, you know, I, I, that's probably changing and, and it will definitely change after the, after the pandemic. I mean, zoom will become a much, much more common way of probably working with and dealing with people. And that's fine. I mean, we've, we've, we've done that during the pandemic, we've brought new customers on and uh, mm -hmm. they've never seen our shop or, 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 you know, we've seen each other face to face on Zoom, and, and it, it's worked out fine. And and I, I, I think that's again technology changing, but but there, there still is a need for people out there in the type of work we do, and especially to deal with problems and issues. And customers want to be paid attention to. And I think if you pay attention to them, you can, you know, when things are going good, we're all the same. It's how you perform when you right. uh, screw up, and yep. that's what makes a relationship forever with the customer is, is that performance you did to, to overcome what you the problem you caused. It makes me think on the flip side, before the pandemic, there were all sorts of people calling on job shops. You have the material suppliers, the tooling suppliers, what, whatever else. Do you let those people in your shop now or is it reduced or how, how, the people calling on you, what have you seen there and how do so, you so manage that? So it's, it's reduced. I, I mean, you know, our, our doors are locked and, you know, if, if you show up and you don't have an appointment, you're probably not getting in. Um, but, but if you make, you know, early on when Colorado was in its worst stage, nobody went anywhere. And 
you know, you just wouldn't, I wouldn't let anybody come in. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we have some of our tooling people, uh, they have to get a letter from us stating we don't have anybody that's been sick. They yes. have to get approval from them. It, it's it's a kind of a big deal if you want want somebody to come down here. And when we the reason we would want a tooling person to come in is if we're working on a really hard material and we need right. their expertise and helping us do that. And we'll do that. But you know that that you can still see people. I mean, you know, we. Well, I'm thinking yeah, the tooling people probably used to just stop in if they were in the area did, and say hi, and, and that's yeah. gone. That won't, that won't happen now. Yeah. I mean, they can't, they couldn't even get in the place, you know, and, and, right. um, and, right. and, and, and that's happened. So they, they have to learn other ways to sell. Right. I, I mean, yep. the, the whole, of course, digitization again, the zoom thing and all that is working. I, I mean, you know, I used to have to drive downtown for my camera board meetings. Now we've been doing it on zoom. I don't want to go to back to where I'm driving downtown. I want to continue because <laughs> right, right, right. uh, it's two hours out of my day that I get back. So, so yeah. the, world, the world's kind of changed, and we need to accept it and, and enjoy it, and uh, figure out how to to make it work to all of our benefits going forward. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed some of the the insights we've we've gotten out of you. I do have one last question, Grady, and that is Riata. Your, that's not your last name. So how did the, how did you come up with the name Riata? So, so I, I live on a, a small family ranch and uh, I, when I was thinking of the name, I didn't want it to be my name. I just wanted it so that it'd be a name of if your parts were somewhere, your customer, they'd kind of refer to you as that one word. And uh, the American cowboy, took most of its vernacular from the Mexican vaqueros and uh, a la riata is a lariat. And oh, yeah, yeah. In the U.S., the, the, the buckaroo cowboys, they referred to it as a riata. And I just, I, I took back the Spanish name and it's a, it's a riata. And that's, that's it's, it's just a name from a lariat from, from living on a ranch and just wanting to kind of put a little Western on, on it. But, but, and it also makes people ask all the time about it. So. <laughs> yeah. No, th thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I wanted to just say, I really appreciate what your podcast is doing. I, I enjoy listening and learning from all the different people and really want to encourage more and more people to listen to the shows and, and talk with you and uh, share their stories and information because, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I, I mean, podcasting and podcasts are a great way to get targeted information that you want to learn to help develop. And, and this, this one's done a wonderful and I've, I've, I've picked a lot of stuff off. I haven't gotten through all the shows yet, but I will. And every one of them I picked information off I've wanted to use for myself or for Rihanna. Oh, Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate that, Grady. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey with us. Sure. You know, too, I think too many times someone might look at you or someone like you or, or just a successful entrepreneur and say, you know, what a lucky guy. And I suppose you are and we all are, but you had such a large part in creating your own luck and you put in the hard work to make it happen. And as you talked about the Riata recession a couple of years ago, it doesn't mean that as you grow larger, you don't face challenges. So, you know, right. there's no guarantees, right? right? Yeah. 
So congratulations to you for what you've achieved and thank you for how you've given back to the industry, the NTMA, the Colorado Association, and including being on the podcast today. So any last words, anything else you want to throw out there? No, I, I just want to thank you again for what you're doing. And I, I really appreciate supporting the job shop world because I think it's a, it's a very admirable type of business to be in. And uh, we are the, you know, contributors, you know, this is where wealth starts and mm. begins for the, the whole world and nation is from manufacturers. And, and I, I think it's a, an area that we really need to all of us be proud of uh, what we're doing every day. And, uh, the contributions we actually make to society. And, uh, and it, it's, it's been a wonderful part of my life to be part of, of manufacturing. And uh, I look forward to the, the last chapters of that uh, career as I move forward here. Yeah. Thank you. Where can people reach you? They can, re- they can go to our website, riataeng.com. Uh, and Riata, can, I just want to spell that for folks. Yeah, R-E-A-T-A. E-N-G.com. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my email, and you're welcome to email me, and I will answer you, is just Grady, G-R-A-D-Y, at RiataEng.com. Excellent. Well, everyone, thank you for listening today. Such great stuff from an industry veteran, and so much to learn and absorb. So, what are you saying yes to? I guess that's my challenge to you as a listener. Don't say no, say yes, surrender. And until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a stellar day.